Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Marijuana is referred to as Mary Jane, pot, weed, or tea. They never say to each other, let's smoke a marijuana cigarette. They say, let's turn on or let's blast a joint. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm John Glenhill. Last week, voters came out for the midterms. At the time of this recording, there are things that we know, like that Democrats have kept their control of the Senate. And there are also things we don't know, like who will control the House. Once all the votes are counted, we'll get a sense of what the country's policy priorities will be over the next two years. But we did get a peek into how voters feel about one issue in particular. Marijuana. What's the attraction of smoking marijuana? What kind of sensation does it give you? Um, well, it makes me feel very nice, very warm. Five states put cannabis on their ballots this year, and the results are mixed. So we decided... It's time for the Weeds Weed episode. It also gives me a sort of, I don't know, a sort of peace of mind. We gave Mary Jane Gibson a call. She's a journalist and writes about cannabis for a lot of different places, including here at Vox.com. Mary Jane, so in prepping for this interview, I was listening to a lot of music about weed, and one of them was Mary Jane by Rick James. Is that like one of your go-to jams? Or are you like, no, I hate that song? Oh my God, no, I love that song. It's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) It surprised me how far back that went. Like, there's this song called Let's Get Stoned, and it was sung by Big Mama Thornton and the Coasters and Ray Charles. And and it got me kind of thinking, you know, before we jump into the current policy, can you briefly lay out for us kind of the history of marijuana in the U.S.? Historically, where has it stood? So cannabis has been sort of inextricably linked to almost every facet of American culture. It was widely available as a medicine in pharmacies around the country. You know, you could use weed as a tincture if you had a headache or a cramp and 
So it was a really common thing to just find weed in, in your medicine cabinet at home. But then after the Mexican Revolution, when Mexicans started migrating to the U.S. over the southern border, politicians who were against that immigration were trying to look for a way to vilify them. And so they started referring to their cannabis use as something that was negative. And that's really when it became referred to as marijuana, which was the Spanish name before that. If you had gone into a pharmacy in, in the late part of the 19th century, you would have found cannabis el sativa tincture on the on the shelves. And so marijuana became this name that was sort of used to to demonize the plant because it sounded sort of more foreign. Mm. And, and that was sort of the beginning of the war against marijuana in the Americas. The movie Reefer Madness came out in 1936. And that's when like fear of the plant kind of reached the mainstream with like the devil's lettuce and oh no, we're all going to, you know, murder people if we smoke a joint. These high school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain. Innocently, they dance. Innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. And, you know, it was really like sort of the beginning of the drug war and, and the terrors of like, oh my God, what happens if, if my kid smokes weed? He's going to go off the rails. In this film, you will see the ease with which this vicious plant can be grown in your neighbor's yard rolled into harmless-looking cigarettes. That was right before the Marijuana Tax Act, which was enacted in 1937, after the plant had been sort of depicted as this drug that was going to cause everyone to commit crimes. And it basically imposed a tax against anyone using the plant, and failure to comply meant a fine of up to $2,000 and five years in jail. And the first marijuana arrest under that law was just like a low-level weed dealer in Denver, Colorado. So that was sort of the beginning of criminalizing cannabis under federal law in America, was that Marijuana Tax Act in 1937. And then it was followed up in very robust ways by ensuing administrations. Another way, like, I think of marijuana is like the hippies of the 60s, you know, that kind of counterculture. How did we see marijuana kind of demonized during that period of time? So there was an aide to Nixon who actually came out and admitted that the war on drugs was sort of manufactured in order to target Black people and hippies. Mm. He admitted as much in an interview in Harper's Magazine about 25 years ago, I think. And his name was John Ehrlichman. And he said, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or Black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and Blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. So it was an admission that the war on drugs was truly an invention in order to criminalize and control populations that the establishment wanted to keep down. And how have we seen that kind of war on drug policy enacted, you know, through the years, especially when it comes to marijuana? You know, I think a lot of times when we think of the war on drugs, we think of, you know, crack cocaine, but weed is very much a part of it, too. Hugely so, especially when it was, you know, referred to as a gateway drug starting in the 70s and 80s after it was introduced as a dangerous drug and, and listed on the Controlled Substances Act. Marijuana is an intoxicating, mind-muddling drug. Its use can lead to abnormal behavior, to psychological dependence, and to abuse of other drugs. It was criminalized as this sort of, you know, way into a life of crime and addiction. And 
it was largely, especially targeted, you know, racial arrests and the disparity of, of who was actually using weed and who was getting arrested for weed really became stark in the 70s and 80s when the war on drugs ramped up. America's public enemy number one is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. Can we talk about where the government ranks marijuana as a drug? How does it compare to other drugs, like cocaine, for instance? So it's listed on the Controlled Substances Act as a Schedule One drug, meaning that it has no accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. And it's listed with heroin and LSD. Schedule II drugs include cocaine, methamphetamines, opioids. So weed is listed as something that is way more dangerous than any of the drugs that have actually been proven to kill people. And there are no recorded fatalities for cannabis use. The fact that it's listed under this schedule where there's no medical use is so fascinating to me, especially because medicinal cannabis is very much a thing. And, you know, states regulate medicinal cannabis use. How did it come into its modern medicinal use, despite, you know, the Schedule One classification? So there was an American activist in San Francisco named Dennis Barone, who is largely responsible for our having any legal cannabis in the United States today. He was a gay activist and he was really involved in the community and seeking relief for the people who were suffering from the AIDS crisis in the 70s and 80s. He founded the first medical dispensary in the nation and he brought medical cannabis to the gay community who were suffering during the AIDS crisis. He was jailed for it. He was criminalized for it. But he was sort of the beginning. The beginnings of the modern marijuana movement can really trace their roots to the LGBTQ scene in San Francisco in the 1980s. How did we get to states legalizing it for recreational use? Like, how did we kind of make that transition? Well, the first medicinal marijuana bill was in California in 1996. It was Prop 215. After California became the first state to legalize medical cannabis, the states that followed included Maine, Hawaii, Maryland, Vermont, Rhode Island, Connecticut, a whole bunch of states legalized medical use. But cannabis reform advocates were seeing that it wasn't purely medicinal use that was going to stop criminalizing the plant and that people were still going to prison for use and cultivation of a plant that this in many cases were using to sustain their communities. For instance, the the movement, you know, in the Emerald Triangle after the the birth of the movement in the 1960s and 70s created an entire network of communities who were sustaining their families and their infrastructure for their communities through use of this plant, but they were being raided and put in prison and losing their livelihoods. So the move to not only have it as an accepted medical plant, but to actually push to have it legalized entirely so that people would stop going to prison is what started where we are now. And then in 2012, Colorado and Washington became the first to, to legalize the recreational use, soon followed by Massachusetts and then Vermont and New Hampshire, sort of all traditionally pretty progressive states. Mm. Then in 2014, we started seeing some decriminalization measures. For instance, Missouri was uh, uh, one of the states that decriminalized before it actually enacted a medical cannabis program. So it's really been interesting, like a sort of hodgepodge of 
Some would go medical, some would decide to go recreational. It's been a really state-by-state sort of situation as reform advocates have worked so hard to, to make this available to people across the country. And then we found, uh, you know, just recently in the midterms, we've got now 21 states because Maryland and Missouri both voted yes to legalize recreational cannabis. So we now have 50% of Americans living in a state with access to legal cannabis. We've got 21 states with fully legal cannabis for adult use and 37 states with legalized medical cannabis in some form. Just for a quick clarification, what's the difference between legalization and decriminalization? Decriminalization literally just means that it would become a low law enforcement priority and that people would not go to prison for possession and or in some cases distribution of the plant. But it definitely refers to nonviolent, low-level cannabis offenses. So if you're caught smoking a joint, you're just not going to go to jail. If you're caught with an ounce in your car when you're driving across state lines, they're not going to tag you for it. It's a way of starting the conversation around getting people out of prison and not putting more people in prison without actually allowing any corporate entities to profit off of it. And a lot of cannabis advocates say that decriminalization is really the only way forward and that we shouldn't look to legalize at a federal level. Next up, more about the ballot initiatives from the 2022 midterms and the tricky landscape of cannabis regulation. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Welcome back to The Weeds. I'm John Glenn Hill. Today, we're talking about weed. 
Like Mary Jane was saying right before the break, we now have 50% of Americans living in a state with some form of legal cannabis. The midterms had five recreational use initiatives on the ballot this year, but they didn't all pass. Uh, Mary Jane, can you talk a little bit about those ballot initiatives in the midterms? What's happening at the state level as far as marijuana policy goes? So what was really notable about these midterms was that of the five states with cannabis on the ballot, four of them were red states. Traditionally conservative, Arkansas, Missouri, and North and South Dakota all put initiatives in front of voters. It was just really interesting to see how people responded to them. So Maryland was widely expected to pass because uh, voters have been in favor of marijuana in Maryland for a very long time, and it did pass. And it was exciting to see Missouri also say yes to uh, Amendment 3, which passed um, cannabis for adult use, and that'll be legal in Missouri starting next year. Arkansas and the Dakotas, the initiatives failed. And part of what I'm hearing from reform advocates is that the initiatives in Arkansas and North and South Dakota largely failed because they didn't have provisions for social equity or home cultivation. Mm, That's so interesting. I wonder, like, at the end of the day, what is the draw of the law? Are people like, okay, yeah, like, too many people have been harmed by the way we've treated this drug? Or is it people like, I don't want access to the devil's lettuce, you know, like, it's hard to say. Well, I think that's so interesting because, you know, public opinion has really changed on marijuana. At this point, 91% of Americans are in favor of some form of legalization, according to a Pew Research study that was released last year. They either want it available for medical marijuana patients or just to entirely decriminalize and or legalize it so people are no longer going to jail for it. And also, they're largely seeing that it's just this huge economic boost. There is so much money in legal cannabis. And especially as people are struggling with a tough economy, you know, being able to maybe start a small business or or get a job at a legal cannabis business is, is something that people are, you know, starting to change minds. And the very successful propaganda of the drug war, I think, is really starting to fade. Are we in the middle of a green wave right now? I don't know if that's what it's called. I literally just made that up. But is that what's happening? I think the green wave, I like that so much. I, I've also heard it called a green rush. Ooh, okay. Uh, Yes, I think it is happening. You know, it was sort of a a slow and steady trickle for a very long time with Colorado and Washington being the first to legalize. And then a few years later, Vermont and New Hampshire came on board. And about four or five years ago, states really started moving to enact legal cannabis laws. And it does feel like now the, the tipping point has been reached, especially with red states putting it to voters fairly regularly. This was the second time that it was on the ballot in both North and South Dakota. And it actually passed in South Dakota two years ago. This time, strangely enough, voters declined Hmm. to approve it. I'm also curious about what is considered weed. Like there are, are states where weed is illegal. I was recently in Texas visiting friends where marijuana is very much illegal. And we were driving by these shops and it was like Delta 8 sold here, HHC sold here. And I turned to my friend, I'm like, what is that? And she's like, oh, that's weed. And I'm like, wait, why is it called that? Is this is this spice? Like, what are they selling to y'all down here? It's interesting because the distinction between cannabis and hemp is what you're seeing there. And mm. a lot of those products are using this loophole of hemp being made legal for cultivation and distribution under the 2018 Farm Bill 
to bring these products to market. So when you see a Delta 8 gummy or a CBD product for sale at a gas station, say, those are almost always sourced from hemp. And hemp is cannabis. It is the same plant. The only distinction is that hemp has less than 0.3% THC, which is the psychoactive substance in cannabis that gives us the euphoric, that sort of high feeling, in conjunction with a bunch of other cannabinoids that you would hear about. THC and CBD are the two that you hear the most about, but then Delta-8, which is actually sort of just one molecule bond off of the Delta-9 THC cannabinoid. So there are so many different components of the cannabis plant that we we really don't even know much. There's so much research still to be done because it's been not available for research because it's been illegal. It's a pretty clever way around the federal Schedule One status of cannabis. I mean, and you know, it's hard to get in their heads, but part of me is like, are lawmakers making these loopholes on purpose? Like, it's it's just kind of this weird thing. It is. It's such a a sort of like a mind fuck, honestly. I mean, pardon my language, but it's, you know, really to like... It's, the, it's Vox. We can say it. <laughs> to try and hold in your head the idea that each state gets to decide what they want to do regarding cannabis policy, medical cannabis policy or recreational cannabis policy, however they want to handle it. You know, Idaho has said, no way, never, not here. We're not doing anything. And then, you know, California is like a marijuana mecca. So it's so crazy to have that be a state-by-state issue while at a federal level, federal lawmakers are saying this is a dangerous gateway drug. I mean, we still have elected officials in Congress and the Senate saying that there is absolutely no way. Mitch McConnell, for instance, has come out hardcore against cannabis and saying there is never any way that he would ever allow uh, you know, a vote to, to legalize at a federal level. And even Biden, historically, has been really anti-weed until his recent announcement that he was going to review federal cannabis policy. He was actually the architect of some of the policies that were, you know, really hard on people who were convicted of cannabis crimes. I mean, largely, you know, some of his policies were the, the ones that put people in jail for a very long time. I want to talk a little bit about the Biden administration. Can you talk a little bit about the policy announcement he recently made and what it does and if it's as significant as it sounds? So it is significant because he is the first sitting U.S. president to issue any kind of proclamation on uh, changing federal cannabis policy. I think that is a big deal. And he also encouraged governors of states to follow his lead and pardon people at a state level. What he truly did, though, is a little less significant because he issued a statement saying that he was going to pardon federal prisoners convicted of simple possession. And that sounds great, but the reality is that there were very few prisoners who were convicted of a federal charge of simple possession. Simple possession just means that you have, you know, enough for your own use. You're not going to distribute it or you're not going to give it away. You're not going to sell it to kids or anything. So it means that, you know, you were perhaps like smoking a joint uh, on federal land, like, mm. you know. Or... Oh, there are probably lots of college kids in D.C. Uh, who have been caught at the Lincoln Memorial. Yeah, that, exactly. that sounds about right. Exactly. So it, it really only is going to affect about 6,500 people who are convicted of simple marijuana possession under federal law, as well as, like you say, people under D.C. code. So it's not nothing, but it does feel like a gesture largely for people who are sitting in prison who are convicted of crimes like a conspiracy to distribute or 
cultivation or something, you know, like if you were arrested with cannabis while also in possession of a legal licensed handgun, for instance, that makes it a felony. So you're not available for this legislation wouldn't affect you. Is there a likelihood that the Biden administration will reschedule marijuana? Like where where does the Biden administration stand uh, when it comes to weed policy right now? So Biden didn't really promise anything other than to have the classification of marijuana as a Schedule One drug reviewed. But reform advocates are really concerned that he would move to reschedule rather than deschedule because rescheduling it as a Schedule II drug would put it under the purview of pharmaceutical companies. It would consider it medicine and it wouldn't be descheduled, which is what would allow the sale for adult use cannabis to happen across the country. And most reform advocates are calling for that descheduling instead of rescheduling, because rescheduling would continue to keep it in the purview of pharmaceutical companies and the government in a way that doesn't really make sense for a fully legal plant at a national level. I'm curious when we started to see this shift in federal policy. Like, I think of Bill Clinton was very much like, I didn't inhale, though. I experimented with marijuana a time or two, and I didn't like it and didn't inhale and never tried it again. And Obama was like, I absolutely inhaled. I inhaled uh, frequently. <laughs> that, was, uh, that, was, that was the point. When, when did we see this shift in, in, in federal policy in particular? The first shift that I can really point to as far as federal policy goes was the Cole Memorandum, which was issued uh, during the Obama administration. And it was a memorandum from the United States Deputy Attorney that was sent to all U.S. attorneys that basically said that the Justice Department shouldn't enforce federal marijuana prohibition in states that had legalized cannabis in some form. So it was sort of just telling DAA agents to stand back if, you know, a cannabis business existed in a state where it was legal and it had permits and it was paying taxes and all that sort of stuff that they should hold off. And that Cole Memorandum was a measure of relief, but not really protection, because there certainly were still federal raids happening on quote-unquote legal businesses during that time. But then it was rescinded during the Trump presidency. Jeff Sessions, one of the first things he did was uh, rescind the Cole Memorandum. So since then, a lot of cannabis advocates who were really hopeful that Trump would actually be their candidate to make it legal as, as someone who they saw as, you know, strong on uh, boosting the economy they were really hoping that that Trump would be good for weed. And of course, he wasn't. He, he did absolutely nothing for cannabis. He did pardon some cannabis prisoners on his way out of office before he left. But uh, as far as moving uh, marijuana legalization forward in any way, he did not. There's like this really confusing dichotomy, I think, when it comes to the law and and marijuana. And I think I live in D.C. and I feel like it's it's a really good example, like this idea that these local jurisdictions have legalized it or decriminalized it, but then it's illegal on the federal level. It really baffles me. Like, how can something be legal locally but illegal federally? And, you know, who wins out in that law? Like, how does that square? I don't think it does. 
I mean, it's even, you know, on a municipal level in some states that don't have state level laws. For instance, voters in five Texas cities just decided in favor of municipal ballot initiatives to say that they don't want marijuana policed in their communities. So it, it it's such a grassroots movement and it always has been. I mean, pardon the pun, grassroots, but it's like it's truly <laughs> it's, it's truly uh, you can't square it. The fact that it is still criminalized in the way that it is at the federal level and the fact that we have U.S. government officials saying that it is a dangerous drug that kills people, while at the same time you have multi-million and billion dollar businesses profiting off of it, and clear data that shows that it is beneficial for communities, and it's beneficial as a plant for people seeking relief uh, as an alternative to opioids, for instance. And for some people, it's just an alternative to something like a glass of wine. You really can't screw it in your head. It's crazy. The hypocrisy that exists around the issue of legal cannabis is absolutely infuriating because, you know, there was one woman I spoke to who who was in jail. She had been convicted of conspiracy to distribute, and she was given a 10-year federal sentence. And she was sitting in prison, and she was watching TV, and the news was on. And there was a woman on TV talking about how her cannabis business was booming. And that doesn't square. You mentioned the grassroots movements, uh, <laughs> and um, <laughs> is that where these ballot initiatives are springing from? Like, I'm kind of curious, like, why is this popping up on the ballot so often and in so many places now? Yeah, often they're citizen-led initiatives. You know, it's, it's really pretty amazing. Often they're coalitions of voters who just want to get together and they go out and they collect signatures and they get it on the ballot and they in many cases, have to fight to get it on the ballot. There was an attempt in Arkansas this year to get the language on the ballot, and the uh, signatures were collected, and this campaign called the Responsible Growth Arkansas Campaign turned in everything, and then the Board of Elections denied certification, saying the wording was insufficient. So then they had to file a, a lawsuit with the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled in their favor, and they were able to get it in front of voters. But it's largely a fight to even get these measures on the ballot, and often they are citizen-led but in some cases, they are funded by, you know, existing medical cannabis businesses who are sort of looking to monopolize an adult use market. They, you know, they see the sort of benefit of opening it up to adult use and they they want to sort of grab up the, the whole pie for themselves before mm. anyone else gets to come in and, and do business. So, again, it's like state by state, municipality by municipality. And in places like California, where cannabis was made legal with Prop 64 in, in 2016 and it started in 2018, it's legal, but almost 70% of municipalities have said no to having legal cannabis businesses in their cities. So there are several counties in California where you can't get legal cannabis. What is this kind of patchwork, you know, way this is put together between, you know, localities, the federal government? What does this say about American policy in general? Is is there something weird about weed policy in particular, or is this indicative of how our country works? Oh, I think I think it definitely says something weird about weed policy. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> I, I have learned in writing about uh, cannabis, I have learned so much about states' rights, not only applying to cannabis, but but it's really fascinating that you know the Tenth Amendment was put in place to say that, you know, states get to decide what they want to do as far as policy goes. And so, you know, as it applies to cannabis, 
it, it, it really does mean that this crazy patchwork exists where one state will put you in jail for it and another state will give you a million dollar loan to start your own business. It is really hard to understand. And, you know, if we look to other places that have legalized cannabis, for, for instance, in Canada, they federally legalized just across the country and then put into place a regulatory system that was sort of designed to stamp out the what we now call the traditional or the legacy market, also known as the black market. And they've been relatively successful in doing so, but that also means that all of the pieces of cannabis that a lot of people really love, the great genetics and the amazing, the actual sort of like artisanal or craft cannabis coming from small growers gets stamped out as well. And you lose the sort of beauty of those aspects of the plant and the culture. I mean, we don't want a monoculture in the cannabis world any more than we want a monoculture in the agricultural world on any other level. We don't want just, you know, GMO tomatoes. We want to be able to have all of these beautiful small growers bringing their products to market. And so the legalization at the federal level is something that a lot of people look at as something that would really endanger the actual cannabis cultivators and cannabis culture that gave us the cannabis movement that we have now, which is now not just a movement, it's an industry. Next up, more on the exploding cannabis industry and why some activists don't want federal legalization. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. 
Welcome back to the weeds. Okay, so as states are legalizing recreational use across the country, the cannabis industry has exploded. And you've covered the weed business in California extensively. How has it played out there? And what are lessons that the rest of the country can take away from it? Wow. The California cannabis industry right now is in crisis. It's not the only state that's facing this kind of crisis. I think a similar thing is sort of happening in Oregon, but I have written about it in California. And when you look at what's really happening, which isn't getting a whole lot of media attention, it's pretty scary. There are cultivators who have been part of these communities, especially in the Emerald Triangle, which is that area north of San Francisco. It's the Trinity, Mendocino, and Humboldt counties that are sort of like the birthplace of American cannabis. They grow on these farms that sustain their communities, and, and they are being squeezed out by the regulations and taxation that came online with Prop 64 being approved and being put into place in 2018. What's really heartbreaking is that a lot of these growers and small businesses were promised that if they supported Prop 64 in order to legalize weed in California, they would be given this sort of grace period, this five-year period where they wouldn't have to compete with corporate cannabis. They were told that there would be this one-acre cap, so it would keep farms small, and that they would not have to worry about like these big companies coming in and buying up huge greenhouses or anything like that. And so they largely voted in favor of it, and they voted in favor of the thing that has crushed them because very shortly after it passed, lobbyists went to Sacramento and lobbied to have that one-acre cap removed, and almost right away all these big players were able to come in and snap up, you know, multiple licenses and then do what they call stacking them. So they would have, you know, several licenses at once and they would bundle them and then they would open up these huge cannabis cultivation facilities that can grow acres and acres and acres of cannabis. And not only were the small growers not able to compete with just, you know, big companies having the funding to be able to put out that much weed, but also the glut of now legally grown cannabis meant that the price of cannabis tanked. So when you're looking at what it costs to grow a pound of weed, you know, tilling your land and getting the permits and dealing with all of the agencies and fish and wildlife and all that sort of stuff, on top of that, the taxation and regulation that was added onto it meant that it cost upwards of $500 a pound just to grow cannabis. And the price was so driven down by this like glut of legally available, legally grown cannabis by the bigger players that they weren't even able to break even. And in some cases, they were losing money just to grow their crop. Where is a lot of this money coming from? It seems like there's a lot of money in this. Who are the, who are the players here? So it's really interesting to look at who is actually investing in cannabis and who is behind some of the, for instance, there's a there's a policy group called the Coalition for Cannabis Policy, Education and Regulation, which is working as a regulation advisory group in Washington, but it's largely funded by tobacco and alcohol companies. Some of their funders are the tobacco giant Altria, the Molson Coors Beverage Company, Constellation Brands, which is the conglomerate behind uh, Corona and Modelo. So this is a really interesting group to keep an eye on because it's led by a roster of experts from the cannabis industry who are very trusted as people from in the industry who have worked as regulators and advisors to legal cannabis businesses. But the money that's funding the group is actually coming from businesses that, you know, potentially will want to dominate 
the cannabis industry and, and regulate it for their own purposes. Are cannabis activists all on the same page about what kind of federal action they want? So there are some cannabis activists who are actively opposed to federal legalization, which I just thought was so interesting when I encountered the first person who said, no, we don't want federal legalization. That 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 would be a bad thing. And I couldn't understand why, but it was explained to me and made very clear that big companies like Walmart and Amazon and CVS are just waiting in the wings. And the second that cannabis is made legal at a federal level for them to be able to profit off of it, they already have the infrastructure in place to dominate the market. They can ship from California to New York. They will be able to use all of their networks across all of the states to just completely dominate the market and shove out all of the small cannabis businesses. So it is a really sort of interesting way to look at legalization to understand that state by state is the right way forward and that federal legalization shouldn't happen until it has been decriminalized and descheduled at a federal level. And then we should take some time to do some research and, you know, get some data on, you know, what's really working in order to, especially with the social justice components, give back to the communities that have been most harmed by the war on drugs first, and then look at what interstate commerce looks like. And, you know, as far as interstate commerce goes, there was also a really interesting um, bill that was introduced that would enable direct-to-consumer cannabis shipping and protect independent small farmers. Representative Jared Huffman has introduced legislation to allow small weed producers to ship and sell their products directly to consumers. It's called the SHIP Act, which I love. It stands for Small and Homestead Independent Producers, and it would allow those small farmers to operate across state lines. And so that would be a a very important piece of legislation that would support small family farmers and provide them to, you know, a way to sustain their businesses under a federal legalization law. But, you know, such a big part of, of the worry about legalization at a federal level comes from these huge companies that are waiting in the wings that would be able to just completely dominate the industry and really extinguish all of these small businesses that are the reason that we have the industry in the first place. I'm also kind of curious about some of the legal gray areas when it comes to the cannabis business. I'm thinking like banking, you know, like some companies can't use banks. Like how would that change the landscape? You know, if your weed guy's able to be like, yeah, Wells Fargo, I get this money from, you know, selling. Like, what's kind of the weird legality gray areas we're seeing? So the legality is so tricky with banking because large banks and big, like, credit card companies often won't do business with cannabis companies at all because it's still illegal under federal law. So that means that all of these small cannabis businesses are forced to often deal largely in cash, which makes them sitting targets for robbery. They're not able to actually deposit their money. They're just, you know, they've got safes full of cash. So the Safe Banking Act is one of the pieces of legislation that is trying to change that federal regulation, and it's largely got bipartisan support. And it's been passed um, by the House six times since it was first introduced in 2013. And if it were signed into law, it would mean that federal regulators would be prohibited from penalizing banks doing business with cannabis companies. In talking about this, I think it would be irresponsible for us to have this conversation and not talk about the racial disparities, the very real racial disparities about who gets punished for possession and who even has access to the legal, you know, marijuana business. Now, can you can you help us understand the landscape and, you know, 
is enough being done to create equity in the weed space right now, racial equity? I don't think there's any reform advocate who would say that enough is being done. And in many cases, nothing is being done. And the disparity in marijuana arrests is still just incredible. You know, there was a 2020 analysis by the ACLU that said that Black people are 3.64 times more likely than white people to be arrested for marijuana possession, uh, even though they consume basically the same amount of cannabis. And they reported that in every single state, Black people were more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession. And in some states, they were up to six, eight, or 10 times more likely to be arrested. And as far as the social justice components go, you know, it's it's wonderful that Missouri, when they passed Amendment 3, had the um, social justice component baked into the language of that law. There's a record expungement part of the measure that says that anyone who has a cannabis conviction in Missouri will have their record reviewed and expunged by next June, which is amazing. But other states which are legalizing are not necessarily paying attention to the social justice component. And that may be a part of why they're failing. There was a, a really interesting tweet from Tom Angel, who is a journalist who um, writes at Marijuana Moment. And he wrote, uh, if you're trying to convince voters to legalize marijuana in 2022, you better damn include provisions to expunge past convictions and let their people grow their own at home, or you might end up getting told to GTFO. (laughs) (laughs) Right now, the culture and conversation around weed is very different than it is from other controlled substances. I'm thinking especially like tobacco and alcohol. You know, weed, even now when it's legalized, still feels very counterculture and, you know, not corporate. Will legalization and or decriminalization, because, you know, there is a difference, is that is that going to impact, you know, the culture surrounding weed for a lot of people? I think the culture surrounding weed, the real culture that comes from cannabis consumers and people who grow cannabis and have cannabis businesses that support their families will be affected but not impacted to the point where they will disappear. I think that that always is going to exist. I mean, any party that I go to that's like a big corporate weed party, you know, is definitely full of a lot of people who don't even smoke weed and they're all just like VC guys standing around trying to like figure out how to make money (laughs) off it. But then there's also always going to be that person in the corner who is there because they truly love cannabis and they just want to uh, share the message of, of why and how it could be good for everyone. The fact that it is this new industry, you know, when I started writing about weed, there was this great excitement around the fact that we would all get to build it together. And because we didn't know what it would look like, we could make it equitable and we could make it fair and we could make sure that women and people of color were in positions of power and that it was really, you know, feeding money back into marginalized communities. And I think 10 years on from the first states legalizing it for adult use. We've understood that that's not the case and largely it's going the way of any other big industry with a lot of money and it's being largely run by people who have the money and people who have money want to talk to other people who have money. And usually those people are white men and they come from Wall Street. But it's, I think, you know, really what what is very heartening in covering cannabis is that no matter how many stories you hear about, you know, a giant company, you know, coming in and and crushing everyone else out of business and then going tits up. There are small businesses and, you know, in a lot of cases, businesses that have just chosen to go back to the traditional market that will always exist because cannabis is 
such a part of their lives that they're they're not really concerned with whether it's legal or not. They're just going to make sure that it's a part of their lives anyway. And and so I think that that is you know a big part of the culture that the corporate pieces of the industry maybe don't understand. It's really been funny to sort of like see people who are confused. They're like, why does, you know, what, what is a stoner? Like what, why does a stoner exist? Who is it? What is that anyway? And it's like, (laughs) it's like, let's get the demo of the stoner. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that, you know, having spent a lot of time around people who proudly declare themselves stoners, um, they're, they're here to stay. They're not going anywhere. And they're certainly not going to let anyone else tell them how their industry is going to unfold. What are we going to see in regards to marijuana policy in the coming years? Like, what's on that green horizon? I think the hope is that states will continue to legalize for adult use and that as they continue to legalize for adult use, we'll also make sure that they're baking in language for social justice reform into those initiatives. I mean, New York has done a really great job of this. California is full of lessons for any state who that wants to learn what not to do as far as regulation and taxation goes. So the green wave, hopefully, or the green rush is, is sure to continue. There's definitely no putting the genie back in the bottle. And I think the things that we need to continue to look out for as we uh, monitor the industry and continue to cover it is who is funding these initiatives. So we're really looking to make sure that cannabis corporations, if they are coming online as, as big players and big entities, that they are devoting a lot of their time and money into making sure that it's giving back to the communities that have been disproportionately harmed by the war on drugs. Mary Jane, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for us today. Thank you to Mary Jane Gibson for joining us. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Christian Ayala engineered this episode. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Our deputy editorial director is A.M. Hall. We got special help from our executive director of audio, Catherine Wells. And I'm your host, John Flynn Hill. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. <laughs>